Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. If you tune in regularly, first of all, thank you. (laughs) Second, you know that I'm a very, very proud member of the State Bar, and I'm not only proud of the State Bar itself, but also of our Texas legal community. We we set the standard, we lead the charge on so many fronts, and well, one of those fronts is the number of women leading our law schools. Let's put that into numbers. So Texas has 10 law schools. Out of those, four are led by women deans. You now have one of two choices. You can either hit the pause button and break out a calculator, or you can take my word for it that that amounts to 40% of our law schools being led by women. The national average is 30-ish percent. So again, we're ahead of the curve on yet another metric. But why is this an important metric? I mean, who cares whether a law school dean is male or female or gender fluid for that matter? Why are we still talking about these types of issues in 2022? March is Women's History Month, and to commemorate that, you will see an article in the March 2022 edition of the Texas Bar Journal in which Brittany Harrison, past president of the Texas Young Lawyers Association, moderates a roundtable discussion with Texas's four women deans to discuss their journeys and the role that women do and should play in the law. Now, we're lucky because with us today are all four of those deans, and let me introduce them in no particular order. We have Joan R.M. Bullock of the Thurgood Marshall School of Law at Texas Southern University. We have Jennifer Collins of SMU Dedman School of Law in Dallas. We have Felicia Epps of UNT Dallas College of Law, where, by the way, I'm an attorney mentor. So big shout out to my past and current mentees. I love you guys. And finally, last but not least, Patricia Roberts of St. Mary's University School of Law in San Antonio. They all have graciously agreed to discuss their perspectives on women and the law on this very, very special episode of the podcast. So deans, thank you, all four of you, for being here and welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. That was, that's called Dean Surround Sound right there. We love that. This is great. (laughs) This is awesome. Yeah, I, I don't think we've ever had four guests at the same time. So this is, this is, this is going to be fun. I think in, in Southern terms, this is what they call a hoot and nanny. So we're going to have some fun here today. So let me just jump right in. I'm going to jump into what I think are one of the one of the bigger questions when we talk about women in the law, and that is, why are we talking about women and the law? Aren't there plenty of women lawyers and women in leadership? Let's let's kind of dissect first of all why this is an important topic. And Dean Bullock, let me start with you. I think the reason that you're asking the question answers why it's, it's important that we have women leadership in the law. Um, there needs to be an encouragement of different perspectives, and women are providing that. Okay, so how so? What, what's, what do you think is the perspective difference between women and men as lawyers and as leaders? How would you maybe characterize that? It's about lived experiences. It's not that one experience is better than the other. It's about lived experiences. And the whole aspect or the importance of law is allowing for a consistency in how we engage with each other in an organized society. And by having an opportunity to explicitly discuss and to visibly see how uh, their, their different perspectives are involved in society, it helps that we have women deans who are able to continue that uh, trajectory of, of thought uh, 
and that is something that has not been very visible and not very vocal in the past. So I think it's very important that we have more voices or more diverse voices as to how people are thinking about how they are to live their lives, how they are going to be living in a society where we are to welcome each other, to support each other, and to ensure that each one of us live a productive life. There's a lot more we can talk about with that, but I do want to hear from from the other deans as well. So Dean Collins, I'm going to turn to you next, and I'm, I'm going to act like Steve Harvey from Family Feud. I'm going to repeat the question, which is, why are we talking about women lawyers and women in legal leadership in 2022? Why do we still have to have this conversation? We still have to have the conversation because although we have plenty of women law graduates, about 50% of all graduates for the past 20 years from American law schools have been women. We still do not have enough women in legal leadership positions. Women are a very small percentage of equity partners at law firms. They are very few general counsels at Fortune 500 companies. And as you mentioned, even though Texas is in the lead on this, there's still only about 30% of law school deans. And I really think we need to think deeply about and interrogate why so many women enter the legal profession but are not equally represented at the top in proportion to the numbers at which they are graduating. Do we have any insights on the factors that might be leading to that? Oh, I think there are so many factors that are leading to that. One, I think, is certainly the implicit biases that women are confronted with as they rise in the ranks of the legal profession. Another is that work-family balance is very difficult to achieve still in a business model that is primarily driven by the billable hour that can drive some women out of the legal profession. So I think there are a whole host of factors that are contributing to women, you know, sort of dropping out along the path to leadership. Okay. Interesting. Again, <laughs> just like with Dean Bullock, you're you're giving us a lot more to talk about, but I do want to hear from, from our other guests as well. So Dean Epps, from UNT Dallas College of Law. I, I, I apologize if I sound like I'm partial to UNT Dallas, <laughs> but I go there every Friday to mentor the law students. And it's just, it's just a wonderful experience with all of them. So, so Dean Epps, t- tell us about women and the law and your perspective on why that's an important discussion to still be having. Well, I think I can piggyback off of your experience as a mentor, as well as what uh, Dean Collins just said. Really, uh, mentorship is the key to so much. And part of the concern with women as they move up the ranks in order to get to be equity partners, to get in other places like that, is the lack of mentorship. And that is really what we found is the key to so much, which is why we have that extensive mentorship program for all of our first year uh, law students, is because mentorship is the key to success in law school or one of them as well as passing the bar exam, as well as making it up your career to wherever it is that you are looking to go. So I think that point is very important, as well as I think as women deans, I'm also getting back to something Dean Bullock said, the lived experience is different. I mean, we have experienced, well, I will say I, but I think I can speak for the other women deans as well, being the only woman in a courtroom where there are all men, For me, that was in the Marine Corps and in Southwest Georgia when I was there. And you're there and you have to represent your client. You have to give that your uh, best in spite of some of the attitudes. You may get a little pushback. 
in, in those kind of situations. Well, we bring that lived experience to our roles as deans, and then we are, serve as role models for our women students who are, I hate to say, likely to encounter some of those same things as they enter uh, the legal profession. We actually talk about that during the mentorship sessions as well, about how that can be a factor. So yeah, we do need to come back and, and touch on that a little bit. Dean Roberts, from down in San Antonio, talk to us about your perspective on this, this topic of why we're still talking about women in the law in 2022 and women in legal leadership in 2022. Well, I think it's so critical for our students to see women in the leadership positions as they're entering law school, and they're entering law school in even greater numbers than ever before. When we look back at St. Mary's history, in the first, we are nearly 100 years old, and in the first 40 years, 100 women graduated. But in the next 45, we had 4,025 women graduating. And now we have a majority of women entering our classes in the first year from 2018 on. Increasingly, I'm seeing leadership positions across the law school being held by women. All of these things are important so that as our female students see women deans, women corporate directors, women equity partners, they see that they can aspire towards that. You know, in our lifetime, Justices O'Connor and Justice Ginsburg mm-hmm. could not get employed as lawyers when they graduated from law school. I mean, looking back, that is in this century, that's hard to believe. And look at what an impact they had on the legal profession and, and uh, their memories continue to have. So it's very important for us to lead and show how women can be family members. They can be empathetic and supportive and community um, servants while still doing the kind of leadership that my colleagues on this call are doing every day at their law schools. Each of you has brought up a series of very important topics, and I doubt we'll be able to get to all of them you know, it, it, during the course of this podcast. What was interesting, though, was hearing, hearing a number of you talk about this issue of work-life balance and how that's a factor, particularly for women. What I want to ask and kind of get your perspectives on is do men, or do you think increasingly as time goes on, men will face the same challenge? Let me tell you where I'm coming from with that. You know, I have a young child as well at home, and I find that as a father, people don't often think that I have to be home to take care of my child or do something. They, They expect me to be available right? We're having a meeting, we're doing this, it's in the evening. They expect me to be available because I may be getting bias from the other side, which is they think as a, as a guy, I can just get up and leave the house anytime I want. You know, so this issue of work-life balance is going to be interesting moving forward. I wonder, do you think it's, do you think it's changed generationally? Do you think, you know, maybe our generation of lawyers faced a different type of work-life balance challenge than those that might be coming through your law schools now and what they'll face throughout the course of their careers. So Dean Epps, let's start with you this time. Well, I'll share what came to my mind, honestly, thinking again of lived experience. I navigated most of my career as a single parent. Mm. And I think we see more and more uh, of our students, male, women and men coming in as single parents, which creates another kind of layer to that whole balancing kind of acts where you have to take care of a child and you have an important, busy career. In my own experience, things have changed over the years. And one, at least in one aspect, I've heard 
Definitely. I was in the Marine Corps for 10 years and lived part of that as a single parent and actually left the Marine Corps in part because I couldn't do all of the, the balancing that was needed. Mm-hmm. The military has become more supportive of those roles now. So I think that's kind of a sign that society, um, if the Marine Corps is changing, the rest of the say. world <laughs> has to be changing with regards to that. I think everybody will experience the same kind of a, a challenge because there are, of course, relationships are changing where people are more co-parenting, really, mm-hmm. as husband and wife, even sure. than having the total responsibility be on the woman necessarily to do everything. I think that that is changing as well. As I mean everything, I think back again to my childhood when mom worked all day, came home, was expected to cook dinner, take care of the kids, do all of that, while the father's role was different. I think our sure. society is changing uh, we have more dads such as just you who have all of those responsibility or are chipping in and sharing that responsibility. I, I didn't say I'm chipping in well. I just said I'm <laughs> I, I'm I'm at the table. And and Dean Epps, before I forget, thank you for your for your military service and remind me never to get into a push up contest with you because I'm gonna lose. No question. <laughs> you might You're... come close these days, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I highly doubt that. D- Dean Roberts, let's let's hear from you on on this topic of work-life balance and whether you think that's th- that equation is changing with the increased role of, of men taking on parental roles as well. I think it is changing. And I think for the better, I can remember during my early years in legal education, 20 some years ago, um, where the women who were working with me and my mentor in particular, I can think of when she was vice dean, every afternoon she would call her son, make sure he got home from school okay. Sure. And that was on her mind in the context of a, a you know busy job, to say the least. But there were many men who would leave from faculty meetings, for instance, because they had to get home for their child. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking how odd it was because the women I saw not leaving and They made other plans. And I think it was because early in my career 20 years ago, women had to work harder to show that they could do it all. Mm -hmm. And skipping some of those home activities was a way that women often had to cope in order to show that they could be as competitive. The current generation, I think, feels much differently. I think there's a lot more awareness of the role of both parents um, or family members with parents and siblings uh, as well that they might have to care for. And there's more uh, compassion and empathy in this generation, I think, not only from the employees who are demanding it, but also from the employers who are recognizing that's very uh, a very big part of your employee wellness and happiness. And just to give you another anecdote that surprised me, I have a colleague who was talking about how she took some time off to see her son swim in his Mm -hmm. semifinals. And he did really well. And the next day she said, my mom's going to go tomorrow because I can't take a second day off. And I said, of course you can. Why wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. And she was so surprised and delighted. And she did. But what surprised me the most was she posted it on LinkedIn because she said, you know, this is what work-life balance should be, we should be able to take time off for the good things that happen, not just the bad things that happen. Mm -hmm. And there was such a huge outpour from people who were saying, yes, that's exactly the kinds of way we should approach things. So it is changing. 
I hope it continues to change. It's for everyone's good. Well, that's great. If you're hiring, I'll hang up right now. I'll drive to San Antonio because that sounds good. <laughs> so, well, I also demand a lot. So, <laughs> hey, that's. I'll, I'll and take you a, do have responsibilities here. Just you know, don't forget that about that mentorship. <laughs> you, you know, we do have virtual mentors. I may just poach him. You could be a mentor I'll, at both schools. This is okay. I'll share. That's fair. <laughs> I have I have never been in demand, oh, ever for anything. This is this is new for me. I'm I'm gonna have to mark the date. So, Dean Collins, let's let's get your perspective on work life balance and how whether you think it is or isn't changing you know, between the gender roles? I think it is changing. And here I have to give a huge shout out to my husband, also a lawyer who truly has been a co-parent with me. But I think I would be remiss if I didn't point out that our society is not really structured to support households still where both partners are working. Why in the world do elementary schools get out at three o'clock in the afternoon? (laughs) And that is a challenge for every working family across the country. We have not prioritized universal high-quality daycare where we pay a living wage to these people that we are entrusting with our children. And my children are all in college now, but... You know, the worst thing that could happen when we, when they were younger was to have our nanny call in sick for the day. And it was a huge daily scramble about who had yeah. the more important meeting and was going to have to stay home. So I do think there is so much that society needs to evolve on to really support working families. And it just frankly has not been a priority in this country. We assume that one parent, which still typically is most often a female parent, is going to stay home and provide that sort of after school or early childhood, you know, care. And that puts working parents in a very difficult and challenging position. Do you think maybe that that expectation is changing though. Do you think we're getting to a point where now it's more acceptable for the father to say, Hey, I'm the primary caregiver. I gotta, I gotta leave at three 30 to go pick up the little one. I think that is absolutely more common, but why in the world does anyone have to leave at three 30 to pick sure. up the little one? <laughs> yeah. If schools just would go until five 15, it would make life, you know, much more manageable for families in which both partners work. Dean Bullock, how about, how about your perspective on the issue of work-life balance and the, the gender roles that are implicit in that? Do you think that's been changing in any way? I have to agree with everything that has been said so far. Uh, one thing to add on to uh, what Dean Collins mentioned about having to leave at really at two to get there at three to be in the mommy line and so forth. I remember those days Mm -hmm. uh, very vividly. So, Uh, but I think now that we are operating remotely in many cases, we can stop work at two and still pick Mm -hmm. up later on and still have that flexibility. And I think that's key. But going back to your question, this work-life balance, I believe that men are experiencing the challenges of work-life balance maybe not to the fullest extent as women are, but they're experiencing it more and more. And it has a lot to do with the cultural norms uh, because on one hand, we expect our men to man up, you know, and be responsible for our children and so forth. And women, as we are seeing, as women are, uh, men and women are both in the workforce, women are having more of a voice and the cultural norms are changing such that they are supportive of women in, in requiring the men to take 
some responsibility as well for their children. As I tell my husband, you can't babysit your own children. So uh, he has primary responsibility for our children as I do. And I think uh, the culture is changing such that that is supporting women more and that men now see that they have to step up when it comes to taking care of their children uh, and also be in the workforce. With that being said, men similar to women are having the challenges of the culture. Women, we have the mommy track. And once you're put Mm -hmm. on that mommy track, that's the death knell of of Mm -hmm. your career trajectory. Men are expected to be men. And on one hand, they would they have uh, more freedom to take off for uh, taking care of their children. However, there's a penalty attached. Mm-hmm. It may not be called mommy track. Maybe it's the daddy track or whatever it is. There is the <laughs> sure, sense sure. of you're not as committed or you're not as manly if you have to step in and take the responsibility that should be your wife mm-hmm. or your significant other. So it, it, it's that challenge that men are facing. I think going back to your first question as to why we need women law deans and women in leadership is that as women in leadership, we can have the empathy as well as the knowledge and understanding the context such that we can be supportive of an environment that would be allowing for men to feel not only comfortable but safe in being able to take care of their children the way he and that that man and and, and the 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 the, sure, the, sure. the wife or the significant other would want to take care of their children without feeling that they would be penalized in a work environment if they demonstrate that commitment to their children as well as that commitment to the work Again, a lot of interesting things that we need to unpack. What I do need to do is take a quick ad break so we can hear from we can hear from our very important sponsors. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about each of these topics just a little bit more. So, deans, stay with me. And you on the other end, please hang on while we hear from the folks that make this podcast possible. The Texas Lawyers Assistance Program provides confidential help for Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who have problems with substance use and mental health issues. TLAP offers 24-7 confidential support and can connect you to peers and providers for assistance. TLAP can also connect you to the Sheeran Crowley Lawyer Wellness Trust, which provides financial help to Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who need treatment for substance use, depression, and other mental health issues but can't afford to pay for services. Call or text TLAP anytime at 1-800-343-8527. Okay, we are back. We are back with the four women law school deans in Texas. We've got Dean Bullock of Thurgood Marshall School of Law, Dean Collins of SMU Dedman School of Law, Dean Epps of UNT Dallas College of Law, and Dean Roberts of St. Mary's University School of Law. And, and I apologize, I don't remember which one of you used the term implicit bias in answer to the first question. Was, it, was that you, Dean Collins? Okay, It so, was me. So I think what we're talking about here kind of leads us well into this issue of implicit bias, not only when it comes to work-life balance and the, the quote, traditional gender roles as we have defined them at home, but really about what implicit bias also means at work. I mean, this, this term implicit bias has been used for at least 10 years now. We've been hearing about it in, in the law and in HR circles. The question is, is that, is that issue evolving? And one question, and maybe Dean Collins will start with you since, since you said the magic words implicit bias. 
you know, congratulations, you get to go first. So, <laughs> so the, the 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 question then becomes that: Do you think implicit bias is only coming from the way men treat women in the workplace, or could women be guilty of the implicit bias against women as well? You know, are women sometimes roadblocks to other women? And I know that's a controversial question. This is hard-hitting investigative journalism. I'm kidding. But, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to, you know, there's no use in this unless we tackle the harder questions. So I want to, I want to kind of get your, get your thoughts on the evolving role of implicit bias and whether you think, you know, women might also be guilty of implicit bias vis-a-vis other women. Oh, I think we all hold implicit biases, and I think they can hold everyone back. I want to echo mm. the incredibly powerful comments that Dean Bullock made that men who are very invested in their families can sometimes be viewed as less committed to their work. And that's definitely a way implicit bias adversely impacts men. One of my colleagues gave a wonderful example is how of women, how we as women can hold implicit bias, which is she says she still does a little jump in her seat on an airplane every time the pilot comes on and the voice is a woman. She just expects it still to be a man piloting the plane. But I do think certainly, um, even though implicit bias can negatively impact all of us, it does impact women in the workplace. And one example I like to give is I think as women, we still have to walk an incredibly narrow tightrope in the workplace as, you know, on the one hand, coming across as, you know, knowledgeable and competent and decisive but on the other side, being labeled as bossy and overpowering, in other words, I won't use on a podcast. So, you know, I think, you know, I like to talk about trying to create a workplace where everyone can bring their whole selves to the table, their lived experiences, as so many of my wonderful colleagues on this call have talked about, the challenges and opportunities they've encountered along the way. And although I think we have made great progress in that, we are not completely there yet. I think it is unhelpful to cast it as a male versus female issue. I think it's much more helpful to recognize that we all come with implicit biases. There is all work that we can do in ensuring that our workplaces are ones that are truly inclusive and equitable and promote a sense of belonging for each and every member. And that, you know, dividing into different camps is not a constructive way to move the conversation forward. We all have work to do on these issues. I think I'd push back to not only is it, do I think it's not a, a male to male or female to female issue for implicit bias. I think going back to we're talking about different roles that um, each gender plays in home life. I think there's a lot of implicit bias between men. If, if a man says, I'm going to stay at home while my wife works, mm. um, or I have to leave because I have to go pick up the children. I think there's people would wonder, is he as committed as everyone else? But I agree with with my colleague, Dean Collins, that it's not helpful. At the end of the day, what we need to do is lift one another up. And, you know, we only know the surface of what people are dealing with outside of their work life. And, you know, back to the, if you if you don't walk in their shoes, I think it's, it's a difficult position to uh, an impossible position to opine how someone should approach their work or not. And I think the pandemic is going to help us in getting to a place where it's more about the work outcomes and less about how you choose to do it. If the father who stays home with the kids then does his job from eight to midnight, 
then good for him. He gets mm-hmm. it done and he's productive. And the same goes for women. If I can add. Yes, Dean Bullock, please go ahead. Uh, we have to acknowledge the influence of law and systems on implicit bias. Uh, for example, wasn't that long ago, even during my lifetime, where the man goes to work, the woman stays sure. home. And there are laws and systems and things in place that would encourage that. And if uh, even in terms of raises where men would get raises because they have to take care of a family. But if a woman is working and she's a single parent, well, what about her? She doesn't get a raise. Well, shame on her for whatever her circumstance, which which would have her her having a child. Uh, without the benefit of a man taking care of her uh, mm-hmm. and, and that and, and the family. So there's a lot of systems in place that influence our impl- implicit biases. And to the extent that we are moving forward uh, and we are becoming much more progressive in our thinking, we cannot dismiss the fact that that those cultural norms still exist. Um, in the form of even it, 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 it impacts us in terms of how we view men who take off and work. There are some women who are very supportive of the men who are now taking on this responsibility sure, that sure. women have. And then there are also women who say, well, how dare he? You know, it, it, it's on both. And you see the right, same right. thing with women who are not necessarily supportive of other women who are able to be committed to work because they have a supported male person in the family who's helping to take care of the family. Some women bristle at that and say, how is it that you have a man? Why isn't he working and you're not going home taking care of your children? Why aren't you going to the PTA meeting? Why is he going? You know, what's wrong with you? So we we, we have it on both sides. But bottom line, it's about uh, this. We're, we're living within a system. We're living within a culture. We are, uh, and, and this culture is such that it has been set up to have defined roles. And where we are in society right now is an interesting time because people are pushing against those defined roles. And what does that portend for where we are as a country as we are looking at these defined roles and how we're going to to operate as as an organized society? And that's the real question. There's some interesting issues you brought up, Dean Bullock, but before we get to those, I wanted to hear from, from Dean Epps and give her a chance to chime in on on this question of implicit bias. Mm. Well, just enjoying the discussion. I (laughs) really loved what Dean Collins said about bringing our whole self, whatever that is, to whatever it is, and having that being accepted. Because part of what is in my mind is that not only is there's implicit bias, but we're unconscious about it. Mm-hmm. That there's just ways it's so much part of life. And this is the way that it is. We're unconscious about it. And so one of the first kind of struggles is to make sure that we recognize it's there because then we can begin to address what to do about that. Of course, part of my background is not dealing with implicit, but explicit bias. In the U.S. Marine Corps, believe it or not, uh, gender issues uh, abound still today, I'm sure, and some roles that are explicitly, at least when I was on active duty, not for women. So there was that whole that whole system that set up uh, the bias. And I think coming out of that background, two things jumped into my mind. Number one, sometimes I'm not as conscious of, of these kind of things as because mm-hmm. it's been part of my kind of lived experience, the lived experience. In, the, in the Marine Corps. I look at them as uh, these are obstacles and things that have to, someone else's impression of what I can or cannot do 
is something I have to overcome by, guess what, performing and doing it. What I tried to, when I was thinking this through, tie in also my experience as an African-American woman, which I think there's another level of implicit bias with regard to that as well Mm -hmm. that we have to, to deal with. So again, all obstacles, and maybe this is the Marine Corps thinking in me as well, all <laughs> obstacles presented that we have to overcome and achieve and pass on to our students. Yes, these things are out there. Be conscious of them, but none of them should be an obstacle to you getting to be that equity partner or, I don't know, you want to be the first woman Marine general in charge of the Judge Advocate Corps. I don't, whatever it is that you sure. want to do, those shouldn't be obstacles to it. But then let's let's look at this maybe from the flip side, right? So we we've talked about we've talked about supporting men and women who are taking on domestic activities at home and are taking those on their shoulders. But then what does this mean for men or women who decide, you know what, I don't want a home life. I'm going to stay single or I'm going to have no kids and you know, the most I'll be is is maybe a dog parent or a cat parent and I'm going to be fully committed putting all of my time and effort into my law practice, into work. And with that, I expect that I'm going to get faster promotions. I'm going to get the bigger raises. I'm going to be billing more hours. You know, what do you say to that person when, when they turn around and say, well, you know, I've sacrificed a lot to get to this. I shouldn't be punished or I, you know, I should be rewarded for, for putting in the time and effort and the sacrifice. Whereas my other colleagues, men and women have decided to, create work-life balance at home. I've decided to just make my entire life about work. You know, what do you say to that person when, when they kind of push back against this idea of maybe being more empathetic towards those who have home issues? So I, I, I wanted to kind of maybe throw that into the mix and, you know, maybe Dean Roberts, let's start with you this time. And, and again, I'm asking this largely because as female deans, I'm sure you have thought more about this and having, having had to overcome those gender roles in your own careers, you probably had to think a lot about this. Well, I think nobody has the magic formula about what should be an appropriate home life uh, percentage and what should be an appropriate work life. And there are some who choose to have a 100% focus on work. Sure. Uh, as long as they can m- maintain good health and, and good practice at work, I I think that should be their decision. If they are uh, resentful in any way of those who are given a little bit of grace because they have made different choices, I would just turn around and say both sides should be accepting of the other. We need all kinds of people with all kinds of contributions and nobody should be penalized. I'd encourage both sides to just consider the alternatives that your colleagues are dealing with. So, you know, if if you can help the, the child or the parent who has to leave because their child is sick, then maybe you will have that same person return the favor in a way when you want to go to a particular conference or you need some help with a with a work matter. So I think it's just about supporting everyone's own choices. We also don't know when it's a choice. So if someone pours themselves completely into work, maybe it's because they couldn't have children or they don't have a significant other or they're allergic to dogs. <laughs> they can't be a dog sure. parent. Um, so we just don't know other people's circumstances. And I'll say this, we have to run our own race and that should be the one we're concerned about. Running our own race, helping those who are running alongside of us, but being focused on our own goals. And when it comes to women, one of the things that I'd like to say to those who are listening, who may be uh, women lawyers, 
or women law students is this. Don't count yourself out. Don't be the person who decides you're not going to be the dean of a law school because you decide not to apply because you don't think you'll be selected. That happens more often than not. I remember talking to a managing partner at a big law firm. She said, you know, it's really something. When we say there's a 3.8 minimum GPA, there are lots of men who apply when they have less than that, but have a lot of other things going on. But the women don't. And that's one of the reasons is, you know, they're following the rules and they don't think they can do it or they think the competition will be too tough. Don't count yourself out. Go ahead and go for what you want. And let's help everybody around us reach the goals they have personally and professionally. It sounds maybe sounds like maybe also the description of minimum 3.8 GPA needs to be revisited. Because well, be that's a whole on, other podcast. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll need to do that on part yeah, two. We'll do that. Oh. <laughs> no, please, Dean Epps, go ahead. I was going to oh, call no. on you next anyway. So I get to call uh, on law school deans. This is like this is like Socratic method on steroids. Uh, uh, don't get used to that. All right, no. All right, this is anyway. this is amazing. Okay. Well, I have to say, and we're having fun here as well. But the first thing when you asked that question, I said, "Well, first thing I'd say to the person is get a life. Really, <laughs> life is about more than work. And when you get to your deathbed, you're not going to say, well, maybe this person would. I didn't have enough time to work. I mean, what about travel? What about all these other things? But it's based on the idea that there's only so much pie to go around, so to speak, that we can't reward both people appropriately for the contributions that they're making. I put on my page performance with a couple of exclamation points next to it because what came to my mind, well, is the person who's working all day and all night and trying to do all of this stuff, is their performance better than the person who has uh, the family and a kind of more balanced life? Are they producing more for my organization? Because at least my approach here in terms of leadership of the law school is I'm interested in you doing your job in an excellent way. Now, if that means that you can get your job done in eight hours or whatever, four hours here, four hours elsewhere, working at home, I'm fine with that. So I would wonder whether... I mean, the scenario assumes I'm thinking that this person working day and night is more productive, doing more for the organization. I would wonder if that would be really true. So I think each should be awarded according to what they are contributing. Sounds like a law school hypothetical. So we can go all kinds of directions in in this class. Dean Bullock, what's your take on this issue? I would say that reward to one should not mean penalty to the other. Mm -hmm. It could be reward to both or penalty to both. The other thing is when we look at businesses and law law firms and legal departments and so forth, there are businesses that deliver legal services. And the bottom line is being able to contribute, contribute positively to that organization. And if someone is working all the time and they want to be single and so forth, my hat goes off to them. That's the life that they've chosen for themselves. And as Dean Epps has said, it's all about performance. It's not just about putting in the time. It's their performance. But also when it comes to those who prioritize family along with work, they are developing some skills 
that are very much needed in the business. Many businesses now are talking about the soft skills and, and I can talk to all of, all, all of the deans here, I'm sure can, can appreciate this because we've all been there in terms of the financial management, the time management and, and the, the soft skills needed to inspire those in the family to do what's needed in order to, you know, get things done. Sure, sure. All those skills are transferable into the, the business place. And so to say that people who are spending time with their families are not contributing as well as someone who is working 24-7 in a business is a flawed assumption because Mm -hmm. those transferable skills to a certain extent may be more important than the time element. And many of the law firms and other businesses are now saying those soft skills, which cannot be taught, they have to be experienced. They have to be lived. This is what those family members, those who are prioritizing and and balancing their lives are bringing to the table. They are constantly challenged. They are constantly dealing with the perspectives of other people, the we ones in the family, as well as the not so we ones in the family. And being able to navigate and to all those various issues, bringing that into the business is something that businesses should value. And uh, along with people who are uh, going beyond nine to five and staying at work 24-7 in a business. Sounds like that would be especially true in discovery disputes and litigation. <laughs> Soft skills and, and knowing how to, how to wield the sword when necessary. Dean Collins, let's, let's hear your perspective on the issue of work-life balance. Well, I have so appreciated all the comments of my fellow deans. They just have been so insightful. I agree that we, I love the idea of running your own race. And I think we need to support the notion that there are many different ways to run the race. And what we're really looking at is outcomes and performance. And are you helping the organization achieve its goals? And this is one way I think Texas should be so proud of its law schools that all of us are really excelling in trying to impart some of the soft skills, the client-centered skills that Dean Bullock was highlighting. Another wonderful subject for a podcast could be the incredible experiential learning opportunities that all of our different law schools are providing, whether it's a clinic or an externship program. We really all are taking the time in a much more creative and innovative way than when I went to law school a few decades ago to get students working with real clients, to get them understanding the importance of being part of a team, being innovative, being collaborative, being culturally competent. And I just think the graduates that all of our schools are producing are so terrific. And if I could make one plug for employers, it would be to remove that arbitrary 3.8 GPA cutoff. I mean, I know it takes more time, but to really look at an applicant as a whole person, not just as a GPA, and to think about how they can contribute to your law firm or company would just be a wonderful way to get increasingly interesting and diverse talent into your organization. So if there's one takeaway, I hope it's that. Remove the 3.8 GPA cutoff. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. No, hey, I was... I came out of I came out of law school with with chronic shoulder pain because I was holding the entire upper half of the class on my shoulder, and so I I know what you <laughs> well mean. Well done, I'm, well I'm, done. I'm with yeah. you. Yes, Whoa. yes. They they owe me something. I was carrying them. So, but it, it looks like it looks like deans. I'm I'm looking at the time, and we are out of time. I could keep talking to you guys because this is this is fascinating. You all bring. Y'all bring different perspectives and there's just so much more we could talk about, but we are at that time. I'd like to thank all of you for taking the time for joining us and for sharing your collective insights. This has been so phenomenal. Thank you, all of you. 
It's been fun. Thank you. It's been fun. Yes. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I've always wanted to do this with a set of deans. I'm going to give you A's. Hey. <laughs> all right. Uh, no, I want an A plus. I'm sorry. And I demand an A plus on behalf of my colleagues. You can visit me during office hours and we can discuss further. And to all of you listening in, I want to, of course, thank you for tuning in and encourage you to stay safe, continue to be well. And you can read more about these amazing deans in the March 2022 issue of the Texas Bar Journal. You're going to see the roundtable. That article goes a little bit more into their individual journeys and what brought them to becoming deans and their perspectives on, on how being a woman has has both enlightened them and presented them with challenges. So I encourage you to read that episode. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.